the best way to clean aviation is not to make a mess in the first place. The best approach is what we call true zero. So you don't emit anything from the aircraft and then you don't have to clean it up. This is The Interchange, Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. The future of flight is in its fuel, and the sky's the limit. Currently responsible for around 2.1% of all human-induced carbon dioxide emissions, global aviation is a significant contributor to climate change. With a new billion-dollar climate act, that President Biden has officially signed into law, and recent articles that call out celebrities and their private jet usage, this is becoming a hot topic as the energy transition moves forward. You can learn more about that on the recent episode of our sister podcast, The Energy Gang, where host Ed Crooks gets into the nitty-gritty of the Inflation Reduction Act and which celebrities made that list. But what does the future of sustainable aviation look like? Today I'm joined by Val Miftikov, founder and CEO of Zero Avia. He and his team are developing the world's first practical zero-emission aviation engine using hydrogen. Val, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Good to be here. So this is an area that obviously I'm, I'm very passionate about, just growing up in the aviation industry and really interested to see how the aviation industry evolves with the energy transition. So tell us a little bit about Zero Avia and how you came about and what you guys do. Of course. Um, so I started the company five years ago. Before that, oh, a long time before that, I'm a physicist and got my PhD in physics, done some physics research, uh, then some startups in Silicon Valley. And then my previous company um, was a startup in the sustainable transportation space already. Uh, we built the world's largest network of uh, smart charging stations uh, for electric cars. Early on, um, uh, that company had started in 2010. And then that company got acquired in uh, 2017, and that's when I started thinking about what's next. Um, I'm a pilot myself, fly helicopters, airplanes, really passionate about uh, that personally. So that was a combination of you know prior experience and momentum in the clean transportation and my personal passion in aviation. I really saw that the aviation market or aviation industry uh, unless we do something drastic, uh, is just flying itself into the uh, sustainability crisis, right? And this was becoming more and more obvious as as we went. And of course, uh, through the pandemic, everybody was talking about sustainability. Everybody was talking about what the future of the industry will be. Uh, so that was a great validation as well. Um, so that's how we we came about. Um, we uh, wanted to go after um, real sustainability problem in aviation, which is large commercial aircraft, scheduled service, uh, going relatively long distances, um, and that shaped how we are doing things. So you're developing hydrogen-powered jet engines. Where are you in the process? Yeah, so we're uh, first and foremost uh, a power plant company um, or engine replacement company. We don't really call them engines because engines is sort of... Uh, Okay, internal combustion uh, uh, type uh, word. So um, what we're doing is um, what we call hydrogen electric or hydrogen fuel cell based. This is hydrogen stored on board the aircraft uh, in tanks, then pumped into uh, the fuel cell system that takes that hydrogen, oxygen from the air, combines that into in a non-combustion reaction. It's an electrochemical uh, reaction, catalytic reaction. 
to produce electricity and that, that electricity goes into the motors and uh, it's effectively an electric vehicle or electric airplane. It's just that electricity comes from the hydrogen fuel cell system, which is a much, much better type of a battery, if you will, to store electricity. And that allows us to get similar ranges to uh, the fossil fuel aircraft, which is just impossible to do with, with the battery technology. Um, so that's how the system works. Um, and we were able to make these systems such that we can actually use existing aircraft and replace the engines in the existing aircraft with our propulsion systems so that the existing fleets can be repowered. And that's quite interesting to uh, all the operators out there, uh, the uh, cargo operators, passenger operators, uh, and the others, because they have multi-billion dollar investments in those fleets and they don't want to just trash them in order to replace them with uh, some new future aircraft. How difficult is that process? Yeah, well, the replacement process is actually relatively straightforward. I mean, it's uh, more complicated than replacing an engine. Now, the thing about aviation market is that it's quite different from automotive in a way that the engine market and engine uh, manufacturers are quite apart from the aircraft makers and designers. So you typically, if you are somebody like American Airlines, who we just signed a deal with and announced, and before that United and British Airways and all, if you're one of those carriers, you would buy aircraft from Boeing, for example. And then you would also have a relationship with, let's say, Pratt & Whitney for the engines. And you would have aircraft on maintenance, separate maintenance program. You would have engines on separate maintenance program. You would have relationships with both. The aircraft typically lasts for 30 plus years. Engines last less than that. So you would have engine replacements on the same aircraft, even with the fossil fuel engines, right? So you, you, you constantly do the maintenance, you're replacing the engines. So we're saying, well, one of the easiest way to um, make your aircraft clean is to utilize the Zero Avia propulsion system. Next time, you need to replace an engine anyway. So we go under the same process. It's somewhat more involved because uh, we're also talking about the tank systems because we change the fuel type. So you also need to add uh, new tanks. But other than that, it's the uh, engine replacement as people know it. And how far along are you with the development? Pretty far along. Uh, so we've flown um, a number of prototypes already, of course, uh, the smaller prototypes um, that we were not um, targeting to make commercial. Those were done for validation of technologies, um, the software, the hardware integrations, uh, avionics integrations. We developed the whole uh, string of technologies there. And then now we put it all together in a commercial size prototype that uh, we have already tested on the grounds. It's now getting cleared for uh, the first test flights. First uh, vehicle we have for that is a 20-seater in, uh, in the UK, in our UK facility, imminent uh, for flight this month, uh, looks like. And we have a copy of that, so the second flight testing vehicle uh, here in California as well um, to uh, start flight test campaign uh, later this year. The next thing that's going to happen on that program, which we call a ZA600 program, for lack of more imaginative name, we actually uh, are running a competition now inside the company for a great name for the engine families. So the next thing that's going to happen on that program 
is we are going to, after this initial flight test, uh, we're going to lock down the design. So we'll take the learnings from the uh, from the flight tests, incorporate that, uh, iterate on the design, lock the design, and submit it for certification uh, sometime mid next year. Now, we of course have been working with the certification agencies for uh, a number of years already. Civil Aviation Authority in the UK, FAA in the US, uh, EASA in continental Europe. So they know about our technology and we have flown uh, our technology already in smaller vehicles. So that engagement uh, has been ongoing for quite a bit, but we will formally submit the final design uh, around mid next year. And what's the, uh, what's the range and capacity of that design? Yeah, so we're targeting for small aircraft. Um, and a good example of that is, uh, well, our test vehicle is a 20-seater Dornea 228, pretty well-known airframe. Another example in the single-engine variant is Cessna Caravan, about 3,000 of those flying around. FedEx, I think, is the largest carrier flying them for uh, cargo uh, runs. So for that aircraft, we're targeting with the initial launch um, about 300 nautical miles of true range, which means that it's 300 miles plus IFR reserves, which is uh, you know the reserve fuel that you need to hold in the aircraft for uh, at least 45 minutes of additional flight. Uh, and that's the FAA, EASA, CAA requirements uh, all over the world, targeting basically the situations when you plan a flight for 300 miles and then you arrive at your destination and it's fogged in and you need to go to the alternate or you have the um, uh, air traffic control holds you in the air for half an hour, right? You have to have reserve fuel for that. So 300 miles true range incorporates all those requirements, right? So that's the target that we have. Now for that aircraft of that size, 10 to 20 seats, 95% of all the missions are under 300 miles. Um, so with that type of capability, we already cover a vast majority of the use cases. And that's one of the exciting things about hydrogen as fuel, that you can do that from the get-go with the first product out of the gate. And how do you see this evolving into more jumbo jets? Uh, do you see that on the plan in you know, 10 years or so or however long it takes to develop? Yeah, step by step. So um, right now we have uh, actually two programs uh, already active in active development with the company. So uh, one we just talked about, the 600 program, 600 stands for 600 kilowatts, right? the power level for that, the size of the plane. The next program that we already have under development is what we again, super imaginatively calling ZA2000. So that's a two megawatt starting point. So it's um, two to five megawatts of shaft power. And that program uh, is targeting aircraft up to 90 seats in size. So a large propeller plane like a Dash 8 Q400 that we partnered with Alaska and De Havilland Canada on would have uh, in the maximum seating configuration 92 uh, passengers and it's, it could be powered by those engines. So we already have developments of that in the works. We will have the first launch, commercial launch of those in 2026, 27. So it's really you know five years out uh, within that period. We will have the first ground demonstrations of that full engine, actually, in fact, uh, in the next six months, uh, hopefully later this year on the ground. So it is definitely you know getting more and more real. Now, the next step after that is going into regional jets and then narrow body, uh, so 737s. To get to narrow body will probably take us 10 years from now. Right, so realistically. 
And there are some technological decisions that we'll have to make along the way. Uh, so I can't tell you exactly how we're going to do it. I can tell you exactly how we're going to do the large propeller plane, like this 90-seat propeller plane. Not so much a 737 yet, uh, but the way to do it is to do it. Right. And we actually have, uh, you know, a couple of posters like that at a company. You know, the best way to do it is just to do it. And you're going to do uh, do that in steps. Um, the fastest way to a large aircraft is to get the small aircraft first. Prove that uh, we as a company know what we are doing. The technology can be relied on. The commercial operators can rely on the dispatchability, reliability of the technology. And the regulators can rely on safety, right? And you, you start racking hours on the small vehicles, small systems, and that helps you get to larger systems sooner. And the process makes sense. I mean, eventually getting into that regional jet market, I mean, that you, you see a lot of airlines uh, with the regional jets flying. They're, they're kind of shorter routes, obviously. But I didn't realize that 95% of the emissions actually comes within that 300-mile that radius uh, which allows you to make the big impact early on as you continue to develop into the larger aircraft and larger range. Yeah, for the small aircraft, yeah, that, that's that's mainly the missions that fly. Now, small aircraft is a relatively small portion of the uh, total aviation emissions. So you really want to get to that um, narrow body jet market because uh, that's where um, that's where it starts getting volume, right? So fifty uh, percent of all uh, fleets out there are narrow body jets. And so you really want to get to that point, and that's where you get the bulk of the emissions, and that's definitely the plan. And I know you're targeting true zero emissions. Tell me a little bit about your procurement process for the hydrogen. Yeah, it's a good note there. Um, so a lot of people talk about net zero, right, which basically we are going to – the worst case is we're going to continue doing what we're doing, right? We're going to burn fossil fuel, um, and we're going to just buy some offsets, right? or we're going to um, do the carbon capture from the air. That's an advanced version of, uh, of the net zero. And our point is that you know the best way to clean aviation is not to make a mess in the first place and then have to clean it up, right? The best approach is really what we call true zero, right? Zero emissions. So you don't emit anything from the aircraft and then you don't have to clean it up. So on that, uh, we think that eventually is what's going to win in this market. And on the order of sort of a couple of decades, that's where we're going uh, with a true zero emission, out of which hydrogen electric is the best uh, option out there from the basic physics, basic chemistry, first principles. Um, that's where you're going. Now, where are we going to get all this hydrogen? Our approach is we're actually playing quite active role in a hydrogen uh, procurement, hydrogen production. Our approach is uh, distributed hydrogen generation at the airport from nearby renewable power, ideally. But the, the, the key point is at the airport. And the reason for that is that hydrogen is a great fuel, but it takes high volumes, right? Large amount of volume. It takes specialized transport to move it. So whenever you have long distance transport of hydrogen for your fuel logistics, you're going to have a lot of additional costs uh, in the system. And uh, that's going to hurt you economically, right? Because one of the uh, strong beliefs that I have and my team has is that you have to sell these things on the economic basis. You can get by with just green message for a bit and maybe sell some, you know, single units here and there. But the real volume 
and therefore the real impact on the emissions, on the climate, will happen only if you have economic story, right? So economics is super important. Uh, and that's why we're going for the infrastructure, we're going through this distributed production on site, so we don't have to transport. We just have, let's say, a medium-sized airport. You have a fuel farm where you already store uh, fossil fuel, right, jet fuel. So on that fuel farm, we now take a bit of space. Uh, we put electrolysis systems um, and we put some hydrogen storage. And then we put a small pipe from there to the air side to fuel planes. So that's the primary archetype of the infrastructure uh, that we're planning. And very early on from the beginning of the company, we um, uh, have partnered with uh, folks like Shell, uh, for example, um, who will be helping us or already helping us uh, build that out, prototype it, uh, build the commercial versions of it, and then deploy. And so for a medium-sized airport, I mean, what, what's kind of the land requirement uh, for that infrastructure to be to be placed? Yeah, it's actually uh, uh, similar to what uh, you would have uh, for the uh, fossil fuel. Uh, you, and you might have seen in, uh, these installations uh, for fossil fuel, right? The uh, the cylindrical tanks by the airport, um, right? Just interim storage of uh, of jet fuel. Um, so the footprint is actually quite similar to that for the um, hydrogen production, the hydrogen storage. The uh, larger footprint is uh, needed for renewable generation, but that can be offset from the airport or even sourced from the grid. My previous company, actually, uh, Electric Motor Works, that um, I, I mentioned, uh, the charging company, one of the big things that we did there was to ensure that the energy, electricity that's used to charge your car is coming from the cleanest possible sources from the grid. Right? We, we built the software technology that allowed us to time the charging of the vehicles to renewable production. We're planning to do similar things here as well. So even if we're connected to the grid with our electrolysis production, we can manage the production timing so that the energy that we use, even from the grid, is guaranteed low emission or renewable energy. Uh, but ideally, of course, you have local renewable assets. Let's say, you know, in California or Arizona, you have a solar farm next to the airport, and that's what powers it. And in the UK, you could have wind farm in Norway. You have hydro, Pacific Northwest, you have hydro. Right? So there's a lot of renewable energy nearby, and it's naturally distributed that you can utilize. And would you plan on uh, adding some of your own? So have some solar panels in, in conjunction with it to help facilitate that as well? I think uh, on the uh, sort of renewable production side, uh, the industry is uh, relatively well commoditized at this point. Uh, so I, I don't think we'll have to do it. You almost, at this point, it's not quite like that, but it's getting there. It's almost like a, you know, off the shelf menu type, uh, you know, procurement that you can have, right? People know how to build these things. Um, the governments know how to permit them. Uh, the construction companies know how to construct them, right? So it's, uh, it's a pretty commoditized uh, thing by this point. The hydrogen production at the airport is another thing altogether, right? So nobody knows how to do it. There is permitting, special permitting involved because it's at the airports. So then you have to have this pipeline that goes into airside. So that's where we put a lot of our effort in on that side of the equation. And we have already prototyped and deployed some of these things at our uh, R&D facilities. 
And towards the later of this year, we'll show a commercial size uh, operation of that combined um, sort of energy management, electrolysis, um, hydrogen storage in one of our locations. And how is your business plan going forward in terms of you know the fuel cells and replacing the, the, the jet engines and then the infrastructure kind of ownership of that and how all those play together? Yeah, so um, that's, uh, you know, this story is basically hanging together well enough for us to uh, sell to all these operators, right? including the most recently American joined in, before that United, Alaska, British Airways, uh, uh, Amazon is one of our major investors, right? So they fly a lot of cargo planes. So having that integrated story of, okay, well, the key is, of course, propulsion, right? Uh, the type of fuel, but you have to bring in the fuel infrastructure to it because otherwise you you will be relying on somebody else and we're actually i'm bringing learnings from my previous industry the automotive where you know 15 years in after the first tesla vehicles tesla is still the only one with reasonable charging uh infrastructure right and i'm on my what third tesla i guess and every time we look at with my wife. We'll, we look at the options, and we say, okay, well, what 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 kind of car we want to buy? And we were all electric, right? It, it, two electric cars, uh, you know, solar uh, on the roof, uh, Tesla battery, all that. And and every time we come back to Tesla because we want to go, you know, we're in San Francisco Bay Area. We want to go to Tahoe. We want to go to LA, you know, summer road trips, and it's just impossible to do unless you're in a Tesla because none of the other automakers took care off their charging infrastructure. And the third parties are just a mess, basically, because they have their own thing. They don't care about car sales, so it's disconnected. Uh, so that's where we take some of the learnings from and say, well, clearly in the beginning of the market like this, when there is no infrastructure, there is no availability of fuel at the airport, we have to orchestrate it. Now, fortunately, we have great partners like Shell that are thinking in the same way, and they're like, hey, we're gonna help you. Right, and Shell knows a thing or two about aviation fuel. Yeah, they're uh, the top uh, worldwide in uh, jet fuel production. They're a uh, top manufacturer of hydrogen for their own operations. Um, actually, a lot of people don't realize, but hydrogen is a huge commodity today. Um, about 100 million tons of this stuff is produced every year by oil and gas manufacturers and uh, some of the specialized folks. Um, uh, a lot of it is used in fertilizer production uh, to produce ammonia. A lot of it is used in the refineries. A lot of it is used in uh, steel production. So it's a huge commodity. You know, pe uh, the world makes a lot of hydrogen already, right? So Shell makes is probably the top manufacturer of that. So they know a few things about it. And we have them as a fuel partner as well, right? But the, the point is that we have to bring this full package. And then when you have this full package, then all these people sign on uh, because you can then articulate, all right, that's where the fuel cost is coming from. Here's the economics of the um, energy supply. Here's the economics of the electrolysis. These are the partners we're working with. These are real numbers. Uh, you know, here's Shell that knows how to, uh, you know, build the economics around that, build the economics around the investments. And then here's the power plants, this is the maintenance schedule, this is how much it costs, you know, how many hours it will work. These are the, some of the checks that you would have to do. This is what you can do on wing, what do you need to uh, send uh, back to the factory for. So you kind of have the full understanding of the economics and, and that shows better than fossil fuel. And that's where people are like, well, 
makes sense, right? And so then they sign up. And so for them to sign up, I assume you guys would continue to be the operator of everything. Well, we um, the operator of the um, maintenance of the engines and the fuel infrastructure, but not the aircraft themselves, right? The aircraft are operated by by the operators, by like by the likes of United and American. We're standing close for any issues, uh, any maintenance, any repairs that are needed, um, providing fuel with our partners, uh, but we're not operating the aircraft. Right. No, I wasn't thinking operating the aircraft. I was, I was talking more about the infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. They get comfortable with Zero Avia, and so they want to make sure that the partner understands the infrastructure side right. that they're going to be reliant for their for their planes. So that, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, obviously, you guys have, have signed up some big names. I mean, you're working with Shell, and I agree. H- hydrogen is a huge topic. I mean, here at Wood McKenzie, uh, dialogue around hydrogen in the industry, whether it's banks, energy players, you name it, lots of discussion around hydrogen, and it's continuing to to evolve. Uh, but also with the airlines, I mean, American, United, BA, making a bet on Zero Avia. What are you seeing in the industry outside of what, what you guys are generating in relation to aviation and some of the zero emissions progress that they've made or are trying to make? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, by now, all the major operators uh, do something. Uh, the spectrum is from those offsets that I talked about. That a, a lot of times, uh, you know, those carbon offsets, you don't know where they're going, you don't know where they're coming from. Nobody knows how the accounting works. It's it's a it's a gray area at best. And the spectrum goes from that uh, all the way to something like us, right? Which is you know true zero emission, real power plant technology, real infrastructure. So it's it's getting real. On the spectrum there, some people do uh, hybrid projects. So they say, well, you know, the battery is obviously not going to work. So we're going to have a hybrid installation of maybe a little smaller turbine, an electric motor, and a little battery. And we're going to have sort of a Prius in the sky kind of concept, right? So there is there is work there. Technologically, it's uh, it's possible to do. The problem is the uh, impact is quite incremental, right? So maybe, you know, small single digits, maybe 10% uh, improvement in efficiency. Um, and even that, not not on all routes, right? So the, the, the question is, you know, why bother uh, for all of this trouble to certify new types of power plants and just have a 10% uh, improvement? 10%, by the way, buys you like two or three years of growth in this market. Because, uh, you know, we're post-pandemic, Aviation is back. If you uh, have flown recently, you, you know what I'm talking about, at least in the uh, actually in Europe as well. Planes are full. right? Everybody's back. Everybody wants to go somewhere. Uh, so the growth rate is three to five percent year over year uh, in aviation. So 10 percent improvement buys you two, three years. Yeah, and then what? Right. So we, we still back to the square one. So that's some people do that. Then you have um, a little bit more advanced. Uh, people are starting to talk about um, hydrogen combustion. Uh, so they're saying, well, we have these turbine engines. Uh, they combust fossil fuel today. We can actually uh, do the hydrogen combustion in that. Um, so that makes sense. But unfortunately, combustion of any type is less efficient than the electric uh, approach, uh, and hydrogen electric included. So you need more fuel, which means it's going to cost you more. And then on the back end of it, whenever you combust, you have high temperature uh, reaction uh, with air. You produce NOx, which is a potent climate agent. 
And with hydrogen specifically, you produce a lot of high temperature water vapor at high altitude, which is also a potent climate agent. So in aviation, two thirds of your climate impact is non-carbon. Right, so everywhere else, all the carbon accounting makes sense to just count the carbon or CO2 and say, okay, well, this is what, what it is. In aviation, because of the high altitude emissions, two-thirds of the impact is non-carbon. Only one-third is CO2. So if you still have combustion at high altitudes, you still have those non-carbon effects, even if you combust zero-carbon fuel. And that's probably the biggest problem with combustion. So we went through all of this and, and going continuously, right? Every couple of quarters, uh, we look at the data again and uh, kind of keep our analysis uh, current. And from the very beginning, uh, it was clear to us that hydrogen electric is really the, the best combination of these advantages and, and challenges to go after. So we believe that fundamentally, this is the end state. Now, there's a lot of technology uh, development that you have to go through in order to get there. And that's what Zero is about. What I like about your approach is it is a holistic solution. It's not a temporary band-aid uh, onto the next technology. You're looking long-term in terms of how we can really get to a true zero emissions and taking the steps with, with the smaller engines and, and progressing from there. Obviously, this is a technology that's going to impact current manufacturers of jet engines. Uh, what are you seeing them try to do to maybe compete with you or try to help zero out their emissions uh, from the current engines? Well, uh, two parts uh, of the answer, I guess. One is, what do those existing manufacturers actually do in clean aviation? And the second one is, uh, what they do specifically to uh, maybe answer the challenge from players like us. So what they do is they naturally say, well, we have this product that we've been selling for decades. It's a turbine engine. Would be great if we continue using, if we can continue selling that. Right, because they've invested tens of billions of dollars or pounds or euros, depending where you're at, into that technology. And that's what their shareholders are demanding, the Wall Streets um, and, and the management teams. So that's the, the, the major determinant of what they do. So with that lens, you look at um, what they're actually saying, it all makes sense, right? So they say, well, just give us better fuel to burn, right? The engines are great, just give us better fuel to burn. Right, and two better fuels um, that people are talking about. One is synthetic uh, kerosene, basically, right, SAFs. Uh, there is a bit of biofuels there, but that, that's just not scalable. Um, you know, you can't scale it to any meaningful proportion of uh, aviation use. So it's all about synthetic um, uh, kerosene. And another one is hydrogen, right? Give us hydrogen to burn. So synthetic fuel, unfortunately, very expensive, fundamentally very expensive, because you have to start with green hydrogen. You start with green hydrogen, then you have a huge chemical plant to take that hydrogen, take the carbon. A lot of people take direct capture carbon from the air, combine that into synthetic crude, and then you have to have a refinery to get the kerosene out of that synthetic kerosene. So that's a hugely expensive process that has irreducible cost premium on top of green hydrogen. Right. So our point is, well, if you need green hydrogen to begin with, just use that. In the uh, uh, in a propulsion system, right? So so that's problematic, and that hydrogen combustion we talked about. But that's what the engine manufacturers go after. Then 
to answer what we do. At this point, they basically say, well, you know, who knows what's going to happen with this hydrogen electric thing. Um, it's too new, uh, probably not going to amount to anything. You know, turbines are great. Let's, let's use turbines. Let's continue to use turbines. And maybe we do a little hybrid here and there. It's similar, in fact, to the sentiment from, you know, GMs and Volkswagens and, uh, and Toyotas about electric cars 10 years out, 10 years before, right? And again, you know, with my previous company, I, I've actually seen it at first hand being in the industry. And people are kind of, yeah, we, you know, we're going to have a little project here on the electric cars, but we're really not going to fund it. And we're really going to put a few crazy engineers there. They're going to produce something that nobody wants. And uh, and that's going to be it. And that's how we're going to make politicians happy and uh, have some press releases. Right. So that's that's what the name of the game was for, like, I don't know, five to seven years in the uh, traditional automotive industry. And then as Tesla started picking up their market share, then they started kind of looking at that and I was like, well, maybe we, we should do something. And then even then, it's super hard for the incumbent players to do anything because they're just not set up to disrupt themselves, right? It's, it's very hard. It's not just, oh, well, the management team is not thinking the right way. No, the management team and the board can be thinking all the right things, but the bulk of the organization is not set up to do it. The bulk of the organization is set up to get incremental single percentage improvements year over year over the existing stuff. And you actually hire different types of people, you put different types of processes, you finance things differently, your risk profiles with the bankers is different. You, Wall Street expects the quarterly uh, reports out of you with the uh, earnings per share in the certain direction and all those things, right? So the whole thing is set up to just maintain, maintain and make incremental improvements. That machine cannot deliver disruptive innovation. Right? It just it just can't. Okay. So even if the, the whole management and the board and everybody is is all uh, for it, it just cannot deliver it. So uh, you look at back at the history and you know the, the classic example is Polaroids, right? Um, but then you know closer to heart, uh, this electric vehicle, Tesla, and everybody else. Every time. A real disruptive innovation at scale transforming the industry is delivered by newcomers, new companies uh, that are 100% focused on on the prize, and that's that's who wins eventually. And of course, you know they they build they build the new industry, and then you know 50 years down the roads they become the the disrupted ones. Yeah, it's the inability of the larger established corporations to pivot rapidly to to stave off any of the competitive threat from new technologies. Yeah. Aviation obviously is heavily regulated and, and, you know, there's a lot of regulations going on right now with the energy transition and, and carbon emissions. Do you find the current environment from a policy standpoint uh, helpful or detrimental to what you guys are trying to accomplish? I think it's helpful on the net basis, helpful for sure. And it's getting more helpful every day, uh, so to speak. Right. So um, in Europe, it, it was quite helpful. Uh, even you know five years ago when we started the company, and it's been getting more and more helpful. So in Europe, uh, there was a awareness of uh, the climate disaster uh, early on, and specific government policies and and the R and D money going that way. Now we have that in the U.S. as well, uh, arguably. Now U.S. is a little bit more volatile in terms of the political environments and and what's going to happen, but um, the directions you know direction of travel seems to be right. 
and people pay more and more attention. Globally, in aviation, of course, the global industry, so uh, you know, any meaningful regulation on the sustainability side would have to have global uh, flavor because you know otherwise people are just going to tanker fuel around right so um, uh, that's been a big challenge for aviation markets right because no single country can make a huge dent right because if you especially you know in in places more fragmented places like europe for example right you can have one country uh you know, putting in incentives or disincentives for fossil fuel, and people are just gonna fuel up in the in the in the neighboring country, right? Uh, and then fly the planes over to uh, a, a less uh, advantageous uh, market and use the fuel they brought in. So that's a problem that requires more sort of homogeneous global approach. And now we are starting to see that with the industry self-organizing, but also the governments are pushing for it. If you were able to identify one thing, maybe it's policy, maybe it's not, but outside of technological development would help propel your business forward and really advance some some of the, not just necessarily the testing, but the progress you guys are making, what would it be? I think it's, it's, it's all going to be in the, uh, in the policy domain, in the government's uh, domain. The thing is, we we have good blueprints from uh, automotive by now, right? EV industry. We had a lot of experimentations around what incentives to give people and businesses and everybody else to adopt electric vehicles. And you know, Norway was a you know beacon example where they they put incentives packages so that now 90% of all new car sales are uh, plug-in uh, electric cars in Norway. Right, and you had places like California that had uh, fuel standard credits um, that were non-tax payer-based incentives um, that uh, incentivized use of clean fuels. And California Air Resource Board became de facto engine that promoted electric cars worldwide, really, right? Because the the car manufacturers would build. They don't want to build multiple different variants of their uh, engines for different markets. And California is a big enough market that was able to basically move the the standard forward, right? So we have all of that data from the electric car market. And one of the obvious things to do here is to just apply that, right? So some examples there, the most important examples are fleet modernization credits, for instance, right? So that's when Zeravia has a certified engine that can go into those fleets, you know, if you're United and you're saying, well, I have I have this fleet running and I ha- it's running on the uh, fossil fuel engines, I can replace the engine with a clean engine from Zeravia, but you know, it's not gonna, it's not free, right? So if they can get access to the incentives for fleet modernization, and that could be, you know, maybe even a loan type incentive uh, that just amortizes the cost over a period of time, that will already be quite helpful, right? So fleet modernization incentives. And then once you get that in the fleet, on the fuel side, we can borrow from, again, EV example, um, places like California, low carbon fuel standard credits, where effectively California gives incentive to the people who use, to the operators who use clean fuel, and they take that money from the people who sell less clean fuel. So Shell, in order to sell gasoline in California, they have to obtain those credits. Those credits get generated by the people who sell electricity as fuel. 
Uh, so it's not a taxpayer based, right? So it's not coming from the tax budget from California, uh, but it's coming from the uh, producers and sellers of fossil fuel who indirectly subsidize through this scheme, subsidize or incentivize the producers of clean fuels. So you can use that and that can improve economics of the initial adopters on the um, airline operators, right? So, so we know what to do. We just need to push it, right? And that's, that's been good part of uh, our engagement with the governments. Uh, and we've been quite successful in the UK, uh, especially, where uh, there's a lot of understanding of all these issues and the policies are already being put in place. And then we are uh, making some good progress in the U.S. as well, although, you know, U.S. is a much bigger machine uh, government-wise, and uh, it takes uh, quite a bit of push uh, to move things, uh, but we, we were getting some traction. And you've clearly had a lot of good discussions when we've been signed up with uh, United America MBA. Uh, have you spoken with the large airplane leasing companies? I'd be curious to see what, what they're thinking. Yeah, 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 and we have some deals with them as well. They're less... Uh, Perhaps less open to announcing those deals, but uh, but we do we do have uh, quite sizable uh, engagements with those folks, and they are of course looking at about 50% of all fleets are leased or something like that, uh, depending on the segment. So it's definitely going to affect them in some ways. The lessers are even more forward-looking than the operators because they carry this asset on their balance sheet for long times, right? So uh, somebody like an operator like a United, for example, for the uh, uh, leased part of their fleet, they're kind of similar to, uh, you know, you leasing your car for three years, you know, yeah, I'm going to take it for three years and I'm going to, you know, dump it and go for a, for a newer one, right? So you care a little bit less about what this three years vehicle will give you over a long period of time. The lesser has that vehicle for the life, right? Or uh, the substantial part of the life. So they care about what's going to happen over time to the market. They, a lot of them take a little bit longer perspective. So they definitely are uh, in play, and we have some great relationships there as well. And you've been successful on the financing side. I mean, obviously, I think you just announced the, the Series B completion and, and, and these other agreements. How have you found the financing environment? What, what kind of obstacles have you faced as you were raising this capital? Yeah, well, it's a capital-intensive industry, uh, for sure. Um, I think it's similar in the capital intensity to automotive. Right, the capital intensity comes from somewhat different place. In automotive, it's all about you know mass production, costs a lot of money, and uh, in order to compete on costs with the uh, with the incumbents, you you have to put quite a bit. Um, in aviation, it's more about regulations and the technology development, uh, but it's still quite um, uh, cost-intensive. So the the first uh, uh, the first investments in the company basically um, I led the first seed rounds uh, after selling my previous company and that pushed us quite a bit right because otherwise we would we would have to uh, run around and fundraise for probably a couple of years uh, to just get started uh, so that gave us a quick uh, start and got us to the first flying prototypes where once you have the flying prototype things become much easier. Right, because uh, people see uh, uh, the real hardware uh, that you know what you're doing. That you, uh, in, in order to fly these things, you, you also have to persuade the regulators that you know they can give you the permit to fly. Right, so it's not just uh, you have something and you put it up in the air. So that's a credibility point. And then from there, it becomes easier. 
Yeah, and then our first rounds, uh, we managed to attract people like you know Bill Gates through Breakthrough Energy Ventures and uh, Jeff Bezos through uh, Amazon Climate Pledge Funds. Uh, Shell joined in, right? So the big names came in, and that gave us credibility as well. So that's that's how we continue the momentum. And now, as you mentioned, we just announced the completion of this uh, about $70 million uh, new money that came in over the last few months. Um, and that's going to get us to um, uh, certifiable design uh, on the uh, smaller engine and uh, quite uh, a bit of the way uh, towards that on the larger engine. Um, and um, uh, all of these uh, business deals that we've signed, um, they now amount to over 1,000 engines on pre-orders which is billions of dollars in future revenues. Uh, and people see that as well. And now we're getting to a point when we get interest from the um, more traditional sort of banks and the, and the debt providers uh, that are interested in financing that uh, future manufacturing against that order flow. Right? So we're getting to a point when uh, we have access to multiple uh, avenues of financing. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, at some point in the not too distant future, I think uh, we have an opportunity to access public markets as well. And how can we keep up with your progress over the next few years as, as you move on from, you know, the, the 20 seater onto the to the 90 seater? Yeah, so uh, we are uh, quite vocal about our progress. Uh, so that's a uh, that's probably the easier part. And uh, we're definitely looking forward to uh, more episodes like this. Uh, we're happy to talk about what we're doing. And uh, I think we'll have more and more uh, deals like what we've announced over the last few weeks um, and more and more operators coming in. Um, we are going to have uh, our flight test campaigns uh, kicking off in the next days and weeks. Uh, so that's going to be pretty exciting. And I'm sure we'll make some worldwide news as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the progress. And, you know, if, you, if you're still looking for engine names, I've got a couple. All right, there you go. I'll have Ban Miller in there somewhere, but I've, I've got a couple suggestions for Excellent. you. Excellent. <laughs> All right, we'll take input. Yeah, well, thanks again for your time. It's been a very interesting discussion, again, one that I am fascinated with and would love to have you on a future episode and just see how things have progressed. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. 